Hello everyone, it's May 3rd, 2022. This week, Dennis isn't here, nor am I, except for now, but friend and producer Richard Durden is filling in with Ben. They'll be talking about Legato Networks, a CompSat company that could maybe cause some GPS interference issues. So let's separate the signal from the noise and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 357 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm not David. I'm Ben, and I'm Richard. Hi, Richard. How's it going? It's been a while. Pretty good. I've been I've been dusted from the archives, <laughs> pulled from the private Slack chat, and dragged into the show. So yeah, but you know, at least we're saving money on the uh, carbonite. Yeah, we're we're saving money on our carbonite bill this this uh, week, having pulled you out of storage. Yes. No, uh, no recruitment budget needed. Just pull from the interns. Yep. Uh, so anybody who's listening to the show for too long knows Richard and anybody who's come to our uh, game night functions, which we haven't done like since the beginning of the pandemic, unfortunately. And uh, anybody who's played uh, Dungeons and Dragons with us will have uh, interacted with him one-on-one. But for everybody else, hi, Richard, who are you? Hi, uh, yeah, I'm uh, Richard Durden. I'm, uh, I guess, producer on this show, kind of mostly yes, behind sir. the scenes stuff, Yeah, doing uh, research and that sort of thing. Outside of the context of that, I'm, uh, I guess, professionally a patent examiner. Uh, examine fluid devices and valves and all sorts of things for the Patent Trademark Office. That's my, my day job anyway. It's such a cool, but like it, it's boring, but that's a cool, boring job. Like in terms of like esoteric, you don't really want to know what I do kind of jobs. Like that's really cool. It is. Uh, <laughs> you do get a bit, uh, yeah, it is. It gets, it's repetitive for sure. I mean, it's a <laughs> bureaucracy type job for sure, but it's a good intersection between engineering, law, a lot of stuff like that. Anyone who's an engineer out there, uh, if you're interested, uh, that's definitely a career to go into. Um, if you're interested, if you want a kind of a consistent job where you're not worried right. about uh, the next proposal or the next project or anything yeah. like that. Um, but it, it's not engineering, so that's something to be aware of for sure. Right, right, right. I wanted to talk about um, Legato. The headline that I wrote here is Legato stepping on GPS's toes. It's had a few names in the past. I'm not sure if we're going to get into that or not. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, this is probably a good time to talk about it. So I think they started out as light squared. And then at some point they were known. I don't know if they were no, their their satellite is called Skyterra One, and I think the company name was Skyterra at one point. It looks like it started with a couple of different names uh, through a series of mergers: American Mobile Satellite Corporation, Mobile Satellite Ventures. Eventually, became known as um, Skyterra Communications in two thousand and eight, which was then acquired and then became Light Squared, which then you'll get into that. So. Right, right, right. So, so like we haven't talked about. Legato, or I don't think any of their former incarnations before, former incorporations before. But um, there was a, an article that came out on Space News, and I thought it was a good chance to, to go and talk about them, because I think this might wind up being a little bit of a fuss. We'll, we'll see. So like I said, they already have a satellite called SkyTerra-1. It's up in geosynchronous orbit, and it does communications. Um, back in 2007, they got Inmarsat to agree to rearrange their L-band licenses so that Legato could take uh, a contiguous stretch of the, uh, of the L-band, uh, spectrum. And I, I think they, they got together like 30 or 40, uh, megahertz worth of 
frequencies that are all right next to each other, which is a pretty good patch of land. In April 2022, uh, the FCC uh, allowed Legato to start using part of this L-band section that they have for terrestrial communications. In particular, they want to be able to offer 5G coverage from geosynchronous orbit, and they want to do it as early as the end of September. We'll see if that actually happens. I say they want to do 5G coverage. I, I'm not 100% clear on this. I think they might just be doing like providing service for 5G base stations. So you can have like a mobile uh, cell tower or like, you know, like a mobile hotspot kind of thing going. So I don't know how, I don't know how far we've dug into 5G in the past here. Uh, there's a all. lot of different, there's a lot of different sections of, of it's a 5G. Yes. Ranging all the way from essentially a band that's just above 4G to millimeter wave, which is fantastic for like a stadium. But if you stand by at a cardboard box, you're probably not getting, you know, service. So a lot of things are considered 5G yeah. and it's not really concise. Yeah. And, and I don't know if they actually want to talk directly to cell phones. And like when you say 5G, that's usually what, what's going to be conjured up in people's mind. But like you said, the, the segment they own does include um, a number of different 5G frequencies. So there's a lot of IoT use cases for 5G. They're trying to kind of make it, yeah, uh, essentially extending to what currently is cell phones to, in theory, all connected devices can have yes. always on fast internet connection. Yeah, which I mean is cool. Like from my perspective, which is uh, crash safety, uh, but to some extent, crash causation, like vehicle to vehicle communications and vehicle to everything communications are basically the only thing we can do to make vehicles more safe. Um, crash avoidance is, is good, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be the thing that ends fatalities on the roads V to E and V to V have the potential to do that, or at least reduce fatalities down to the point where it's unusual and, you know, headlines compared to today where we have, you know, fatalities literally hundreds and thousands of times a day. It's, it's kind of silly how, how deadly cars can be. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> you have to consider the uh, miles driven, you know, to, to kind of scale your, your shock and, and, that is one of the the best uses for 5G that I can see. Although, you know, it doesn't necessarily require 5G, but like when you see, yeah, people talking about 5G being more than cell phones, that's what I think of. Chubby in the chat says it'll also prevent traffic jams, which I think is, yeah, a very good point. For those who maybe aren't as familiar with the spectrum, again, we're talking about how 5G is a lot of different spectra. Do you know where L-band falls as far as in this spectrum from uh, traditional, you know, 4G uh, yeah. kind of cell phone signals to like millimeter wave uh, on the on the scale. So technopedia.com says that it's uh, the L band uh, is one to two gigahertz. One to two gigahertz, you know, 2.4 gigahertz. That's where you have like the normal radio, you know, Wi-Fi yeah. is like 2.4 and 5 yeah. uh, gigahertz. You're in that that band. Yeah. So we're, we're talking like UHF kind of area. And I'm glad you asked that because like I was a little unsure that there was an L band when I when I started doing so you, this research. So UHF is three hundred to three 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 hundred megahertz to three gigahertz. Okay. Is the the decimeter band they call it. Yeah. And then L, okay. So it goes HF, VHF, UHF, L, S C X, K U, K K. Cool. That that's a good it's good to get all of them right next to each other. I like that. 
Yeah, that having kind of laid out this map, you might be able to guess what the issue is here. Um, everybody and their mom is worried about interference with uh, the GPS uh, signal. And like when I say everybody and their mom, Space News in their article uh, was particularly talking about Iridium, Planet IQ, and GeoOptics joining a group of 90-some companies that are like protesting in a bureaucratic kind of way, uh, raising a stink about this. I, I believe this is the same as the Keep GPS Working Coalition. And so like, it's, it's not entirely clear to me as a, a podcasting schmuck who is right here. Um, Legato, for their end of it, says that the U.S. government hasn't described any equipment that would be affected um, by them bringing their network online. But then again, the people who'd be affected is DOD, because we're mostly talking about military GPS, it sounds like. And there's no way DOD is going to be very quick about describing the hardware that they have and a way to interfere with it. But on the other hand, FCC has refused to grant licenses uh, for parts of the spectrum that are close to GPS. Um, in fact, one of their refusals was to... Uh, light squared. The fact that they weren't able to get this FCC license wound up forcing them into their most recent bankruptcy. I don't know if, if in this long chain of, of bureaucratic ownership, they've ever gone into bankruptcy before, but it forced them into bankruptcy. And after reorganizing from that bankruptcy, they became legato. So is this an issue or not? It's, it's not super clear to me. And, and I, I guess it's not super clear to FCC. I mean, to be fair, this most recent approval um, in 2020, now it sounds like some people are kind of blaming it on the pandemic, having concentrated um, important decisions onto too few people. And they just didn't have enough people to make a proper decision. And, you know, they were doing their best, but they kind of made a bad call here. But, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. So part of their decision making was that they're making legato sh uh, reserve kind of buffers on either end of its spectrum to try to prevent that sort of interference uh, you know as you can imagine if you are the inner you know spectrum being interfered upon you want to make sure that that's not the case so you probably don't want them there at all right but uh, you know there is supposed to be some sort of buffer uh, but you know it really comes down to uh, you know I am not a spectrum expert but I guess I can imagine that even though on paper you only have so much spectrum in practicality when you ha when you implement it, there might be bleed over or uh, you know equipment that maybe doesn't function as intended or you know causes interference between the spectrum. Um, we could probably bring on an expert for something like that. So this this may not ever come to a head, right? Like I think the the least energy version of of this universe is FCC going, yeah, you're right, we made the wrong call. You don't get to do this, and uh, Legato has to go figure something else out. But like, there's a noisier version of this, which is where FCC says, no, we made a call. We're going to stick with it. Legato goes online and then starts screwing with, you know, at, like actually causing interference with, uh, with people using GPS signals. Um, who knows? Right now, it sounds like they're only going to be targeting part of Virginia to, you know, actually hit with this, uh, with this coverage. Boy, that's a, that's a loaded way to say that sentence. But, you know, hopefully a small test market will make this a really easy 
thing to fix should there be an issue. But yeah, I, I thought it'd be cool to, to kind of talk about this now and then we can come back to it if and when. So my understanding of the part of Virginia where they're targeting kind of this part of Northern Virginia, just outside DC, there is a lot of defense contract, satellite agency, and data centers out there. Yeah. Uh, if there's some issue, they're going to find it in that uh -huh. area. Exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> Which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing from Legato's perspective, but you know, they picked the test, uh, the test market. So exactly. I think it'd be really cool to have my cell phone talk to uh, a satellite, like with no further modifications, because I've got a 5G cell phone. Like if this actually works the way I think they're suggesting, because like I, I truly don't know what they're trying to do here. But like, yeah, if you could have cell phones talking to satellites uh, for more than just GPS, I think that'd be really cool. Well, yeah, I believe that's what Light Squared's initial intention was, was to use a 4G network. But instead of using cell towers, it was satellite towers with yeah. the same frequency. Huh. Yeah. And they, the thing, the reason that I'm a little hesitant when I'm reading all this is because like... They, they call it mixed communications or something like that, but I could easily see the kind of marketing level stuff that I'm reading be used to describe ground stations that then form a, a, a mini cell tower. I don't know. And again, I could be mistaken about what I thought the, the, yeah. the point of Light Squared's purpose was, but that was my yeah. understanding back then was 4G wireless mobile spectrum uh, using at least in part satellite communication. And this is this is a, a kind of a cool article to talk about because the This Week in Spaceflight History is going to rewind the clock, obviously, but we're going to be talking about some areas very similar to this, and I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so let's go ahead and translate on over. We have three shorts and sweets this week. Uh, Richard, what's our first one? So our first short and sweet is OSIRIS-REx mission extension announced. NASA announced last week that after OSIRIS-REx delivers its samples from the asteroid Bennu to Earth in September 2023, the spacecraft will continue on a new mission. The extended mission, named OSIRIS Apophis Explorer, or OSIRIS Apex, will rendezvous with asteroid 99942 Apophis in 2029, shortly after Apophis makes a very close approach to Earth. The spacecraft is expected to study the asteroid for 18 months, but will not be collecting any additional samples. OSIRIS-REx Deputy Principal Investigator Danny Della Justina will become Principal Investigator of OSIRIS Apex. Alright, next up, SOFIA operations to end later this year. After several years of near cancellations and revivals, NASA and German space agency DLR have announced that flights of SOFIA will end no later than September 30th of this year. SOFIA, a Boeing 747 carrying a 2.7-meter infrared telescope, has been criticized for high operating costs and limited scientific productivity. Its $85 million budget was second only to Hubble among operational astrophysics missions at NASA, and project termination was recommended by last year's astrophysics decadal survey. Officials with SOFIA attempted to defend the program earlier this year, arguing that the decadal survey did not take into consideration recent productivity improvements, among other things, but it appears their effort was unsuccessful. The specifics of how the program will be concluded are still under discussion, with about 70 more flights still planned. And finally, Axiom 1 and Crew 4 swap places. Crew Dragon Endeavor has reached the end of the Axiom Space's first mission, undocking from the ISS on Sunday, April 24th, and splashing down the next day. The planned eight-day stay at the ISS for the four-person crew ended up lasting 15 days, mostly due to weather delays. 
Two days later, Crew Dragon Freedom launched, marking the start of Crew 4. Finally, on April 29th, SpaceX launched yet another Starlink mission from Space Launch Complex 40. While Starlink launches are routine, this one used the same booster that was used for Axiom 1 on April 8th, setting a new record for a booster turnaround at 21 days, 6 hours. Alright, it's time for this week in spaceflight history. The clue last week was more tinfoil. And we had, I think, five or six people guess, but only three people got it correct. That would be Peter McMally, Cy Kyle, and Deathkin. Thank you, everybody, for sending in your guesses. This week in spaceflight history is the 5th of May, 1997. It was the maiden launch of the Iridium satellites. Iridium satellites are known for uh, their flares, which uh, is caused by these giant antennas. They're, they're big flat antennas. They're, they're the size of a front door. Uh, and there are four of them on each satellite. And they're angled in such a way that in a very predictable way, they reflect light from the sun uh, down onto the night side of Earth. And they're very bright, but just for, you know, a couple of seconds as they, uh, just hit just the right angle for your pos- particular position on Earth. And so they were like the number one, probably the, the number two thing that was mistaken for an alien spacecraft, the number one being the moon, May- maybe number three after, uh, after Venus. But, uh, more tinfoil was, uh, I was trying to make a UFO reference, you know. <laughs> tinfoil we're adding satellites you know this is a launch of satellites so we're gonna need more tinfoil for the extra aliens but i, I <laughs> well you see it was an iridium satellite that went through the swamp gas and you see that's how that's why my car is in the lake officer <laughs> right right go go ahead and ignore the smell of cheap whiskey that was also the aliens uh okay so um the Iridium constellation is really an interesting thing. It only took a decade, 10 years to go from initial conception to the launch of the first spacecraft. It was conceived of in late 1987. Uh, the first patent was issued in 1988. Iridium, the company, was incorporated in 1991. And then uh, Motorola was contracted to develop and construct these things in, in 1993. So really a a super fast i mean like th- this is like new space startup level of speed i think it's it's pretty cool um this launch took place on a delta 2 in the uh 7920-10c configuration and it launched out of vandenberg uh iridium satellites basically half of them launched out of vandenberg and half of them launched uh out of baikonur i believe they actually flew a, a mission that had an iridium payload test, but no satellite out of Taiyuan on uh, a CZ-2C. And they, they didn't do any additional. Oh, actually, no, that's not true. That's not true. They actually did fly these on long marches. So yeah, you, you get three different vehicles, three different locations where, uh, where iridium satellites are launching out of, you know, spanning the late nineties and early two thousands. This particular launch, uh, had on board five satellites, Iridium four, five, six, seven, and eight. Seven is the most notable out of this group. It, it had a partial failure in 2009. Um, and they brought in a backup, uh, Iridium 51 to take up its place. And then seven actually stayed on orbit and did traffic routing work 
uh, to help Iridium 51. I don't know exactly what, what that looked like. I tried to, tried to find some information. Um, but they're, they're really tight lipped about what happened here. I was able to find a number of redacted documents, but nothing actually helpful. Um, but yeah, it was kind of cool that 51 and seven were separated by a hundred kilometers and they just kind of flew around the earth as, as buddies. Mostly what I wanted to talk about for this week, uh, for, for this week's event was Iridium, the company. I, I think it's, I think it's really fascinating and sort of a weird business slams into space flight engineering kind of way. They planned to begin service in September of 1998, but they had a couple of delays. Um, there were some software glitches and ground switching stations, apparently, uh, as well as delays in handset manufacturing, which is kind of interesting because they had plenty of time to know exactly when they were planning on beginning service. Um, but the, the delays weren't too bad. They began actual service in November of 1998. So the, the first call on the network was made by Vice President Al Gore to Gilbert Grovener, the great-grandson, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, the great-grandson of Alexander Graham Bell, uh, also the chairman of the National Geographic Society. But like, what a great, iconic uh, first call. Like, if you're a, a telephone company, like, that's that's the best you can hope for. The first call was made in 1998, but they didn't hit full global coverage until 2002 because, uh, you know, they needed a, a bunch of satellites. Actually, they needed 77 satellites, which is why the company was called Iridium. Iridium is element number 77. I think that's pretty cool. They sold uh, a, a bunch of devices that were compatible with their network. Uh, primarily, they sold dual mode phones, you know, two-way devices, but they also sold one-way devices and not just one-way receivers, but also one-way transceivers. Um, so receiving would be a, a pager. And basically, they have um, an MDA, a message delivery area. And if you sent a message to one of their pagers, um, they would just blanket whatever MDA the pager was assigned to with the message and assume that it got it. Um, but then one way, the opposite direction would be a, a data logger. You could have a buoy, uh, out in the ocean that could, you know, log, uh, uh, wave data or something like that and, and transmit it back home. So Iridium selected, uh, low earth orbit as sort of their realm, uh, 781 kilometers. Now, using Leo is sort of an interesting choice. Like in the new segment, we talked about a geo communication satellite, and that's generally where we think about communication satellites. Um, but, you know, now there are, you know, definitely some medium Earth orbit communication satellites like GPS. You know, it's one way, but, you know, still kind of the same idea. And that's a medium Earth orbit. Um, and then the, you know, all of the new mega constellations are all in Leo. And so we kind of think about using Leo as this new idea, but, but Iridium was using it long before, uh, Starlink was around. So the reason that they wanted to use Leo was because it allowed them to use omni antennas for ground equipment. It also gets some high bandwidth, but the fact that you don't have to have a satellite dish on the ground, um, is a real plus. You know, like if you're talking about handheld devices. However, uh, working in Leo also decreases the vehicle lifetime. Like we know this, we, we understand how drag, uh, pulls satellites out of the sky. And 
I wonder if they felt comfortable making the call to go for Leo, which requires more satellites and replacement more often. Um, I, I wonder if they made that choice because they were expecting a huge booming business. And well, I think I think they must have. But I wonder if they would have made a different call if they knew that they weren't ever going to have the number of customers that they really, uh, really needed or hoped for. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. The Iridium satellites, like I said, they have four antennas. They're canted. They're attached to the front of the satellite in sort of a cross configuration. They're canted backwards at something like 40 degrees. Using, uh, using their antennas, they can create, um, 48 beams each satellite creates 48 beams down to the ground um, and then they have uh, four cross links to talk to uh, other satellites when you make a phone call using uh, oh and all all of this all applies to the original generation there's also a new uh, iridium satellite that's flying now um, but i'm only going to be talking about the first generation so when you called an Iridium satellite, the data got routed through this cluster of beams. So you would basically go from one beam to another as you passed through a particular satellite's service area, right? The, the portion of Earth that it could see. And then once you got to the edge, you would transition to the next satellite in line. And one of the interesting things is that they uh, used packet switching to be able to um, connect to multiple clients, even on a single beam. Uh, each client would take time sending their data up um, and then kind of yield the, the connection to somebody else. And they could all talk on a single frequency on a single beam to a, a single satellite and, you know, a single antenna on the satellite. What's really neat is if you were to, you know, call up, connect to one of these 48 beams, and if the person that you were calling was somebody else on the Iridium network, you actually, your call would go straight to the satellite from the satellite through the other satellites and then down to the recipient. It would never have to make connection with, uh, with a ground terminal. And something about that just seems really cool to me, especially given how early this was, uh, this satellite network was implemented. You mentioned earlier on that basically one of their technology was patented back in the late 80s, essentially. And uh, it looks, you know, just flipping through them real quick again, I'm not an expert on communications, but it looks like a lot of their early work was on that switching between satellites, kind of the handoff between satellites and the communication with multiple multiple users. And it, it makes sense because it's, it's one of the keys of what Iridium became. Um, in, initially, they wanted to use dumb satellites which I think is really cool, um, like in, in a very different meaning of the word cool. So the original idea was to have um, these satellites that didn't really know or care where they were or where their customers were. Um, instead, they would exchange data with the ground when they passed over the poles, and then they would send, they would just broadcast out data on time triggers, which is, it's like delightfully clockwork to me, uh, kind of old fashioned. But yeah, they, they wound up realizing that, that, that they weren't going to be able to meet the bandwidth requirements that they wanted to be able to have. And so they switched to this more dynamic setup. And so it makes sense that very early on, they were filing patents for this kind of thing. I, I really wish David was here because part of their secret sauce 
was dynamic routing, which requires one satellite being able to talk to another. And apparently they considered using optical links for those connections. Um, but they wound up being able to meet the requirements with uh, regular old microwave. Also, I saw people saying that their competitors never used uh, satellite to satellite links, which I mean, is definitely true for, you know, depending on which con constellation you're looking at. But I wasn't able to pin down exactly which constellation was the first uh, to use um, satellite links, the, the, I guess the second after... Um, after Iridium, because I believe Iridium was the first. Uh, another fun little detail here is um, their ability to route calls between satellites. They had to use a lot of processor power uh, up in orbit. Each of these vehicles actually had seven PowerPC uh, 603E processors. These are the upgraded PowerPC chip that runs at uh, 200 megahertz instead of the 100 megahertz that the first big power PC processor ran at. I'm blanking a little bit on the name, but that's okay. Um, this is the same processor that was used in the Power Macintosh 6500, which is just kind of crazy, but also cool. This is not a radiation hardened uh, processor, and it's just like a, a PC processor. So seven of these guys, right? Uh, four uh, one for each of the crosslinks, then one for satellite control and a spare for satellite control. And then the seventh was resource management and phone call processing. They targeted the wrong market segment. Yeah. Uh, I, trust me, I'm getting to it because it's, it's kind of crazy. And, uh, Deathkin in the chat says they initially thought they needed 77 satellites, but they were able to go operational with only 66. And I think at one point they actually, uh, cause they put, additional spares in orbit. I think they got, I mean, I know that they hit 68, but I think they got very close to 77. I think they might've gone above 68, but yeah, kind of, kind of a bummer that, that they didn't hit the atomic number that they were looking for. Uh, Chubby says, yeah, 200 megahertz was top of the line in 19, 1997. I mean, for real, like today it, it's kind of unusual to buy a microprocessor that doesn't hit uh, 200 microhertz. So you can, microhertz, millihertz. So you can imagine, you can imagine that being just crazy blistering fast back then. Uh, Chris says, yeah, my Raspberry Pi puts that to shame. Yeah. Cause most Pis run at like two gigahertz, right? What, one or two gigahertz, something like that, depending on which one you get. Okay. Uh, so now let's talk about the business case. This is, this is just kind of astonishing to me. I, I think really what happened is that Iridium was sort of out of time, like not even too early. Like they definitely were too early uh, because we are now doing very similar things uh, with like Starlink and whatnot. But more than being early, it feels to me like they were just out. Like they, they just didn't they didn't fit. And I don't think they would have really fit in any time period because the the strategies that they used would have been totally different. But the the business case, like the the failure of the business case is is just about as crystal clear as you could ask for. Um, there's a fantastic article uh, that'll be in the show notes. It, it was published in the Journal of Information Technology Management, uh, which is about as specific as you could ask for. The company entered bankruptcy in 1999 and. Uh, this article breaks down the the bankruptcy into into four main causes, and I, I didn't really stick to the four categories that they found, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm going to walk you through. So first off, um, they had limited 
and therefore expensive equipment on offer. Their dual mode handset cost $3,200 to $3,800, depending on where and when you got it. The pagers cost $700, and, and that's just to buy the hardware. The service fees uh, were also incredibly high, 2 to $7 per minute. And that depended on the provider because they didn't actually provide any telephone services. They had people who bought the licensing to actually go and, and put phones in the hands of customers. Chris says that's in 1990s dollars. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Uh, that is truly expensive. So consider that, you know, you could discount, potentially you could discount these prices, especially in the beginning, just to, to get a customer base going. But these prices are so high that uh, unless you are really taking a beating, there's no way you're going to be able to compete with cell phones. Uh, just, there's just no way. And cell phone providers, you know, on, on their end of, of the market did a, an incredible job, uh, first reducing and then eliminating roaming fees. And in doing so, they attacked Iridium's one true advantage, right? Iridium was in the market um, saying, hey, we are unique because we can give you fantastic coverage no matter where you are. Like you have a, a satellite cell phone, it's super reliable. You're going to be good even if you're in the middle of the ocean. And cell phones, cell phones just didn't have that reliability, especially in the early nineties. They, they were, I mean, trash, right? Like anybody who had a cell phone that early, uh, understands that, you know, the, can you hear me now commercial from Verizon or, or was that T-Mobile sprint? Was that sprint? Oh, geez. <laughs> All I can, I can remember the guy's face, no, maybe which I'm is wrong. unusual. Maybe the me. guy switched it. Let me double check here. Cause he, the guy switched companies. Oh, really? It was Verizon. And then he switched to sprint recently. Oh, interesting. That threw me off. Okay. Okay. Right. But like, you know, that commercial was very effective because that was the life of a cell phone user. <laughs> um, and so Iridium really gets to differentiate itself by saying, Hey, we have a reliable network uh, or reliable coverage, right? They didn't really have a network in the same sense. And cell phone providers understood that that was the issue. And so, you know, there was all this work between competing cell phone providers to um, buy time on each other's network and provide uh, a much more unified experience for their customers. Um, there probably were a lot of sacrifices that were made in order to do that, but boy, uh, if it wasn't effective, right? Another issue is that Iridium didn't understand that mobile phone service, and by mobile phone, I'm including uh, cell phones and satellite phones all in the same category. But Iridium didn't understand that that sort of, of service that they were offering was highly elastic. This is the whole idea of supply and demand. Um, you, you have high, high supply, you have low demand. And basically people were willing to put up with poor coverage and poor call quality in order to gain access to cheaper, cheaper services. They were quite happy to, to go with the, the cheapest option on the market, even if it wasn't the best option. And this article that, that I'm citing says that they didn't understand this. I think, I think that must be true that they really thought that, Hey, if people hear 
what calls sound like on our network and understand that that they're never going to lose service. People just flock to us and pay whatever we ask, uh, whatever we ask them to pay. And that just wasn't the case. You know, that kind of reminds me of, of at the risk of going off on a tangent here, Go for uh, with commercial airlines. Uh, you mm. know, people always complain about how small the airline seats are, but the airlines are always like, hey, we're happy to put in bigger seats. People always choose the cheaper, smaller seat over the bigger seats. And so it's it, people say one thing and then they put their dollars a different way. So they say I want something, but they'd rather pay for the cheaper option at the end of the day. Yep, that's a, a very. I mean, it's a, it's almost an analogy, but that's that's a, a great way to think about this. So I, I talk about how bad cell phones were at the beginning, and maybe you know cell phones weren't the best tool for a huge number of like professional uses. Um, but that was only true when Iridium was first conceived. By the time Iridium was up and operational, and certainly by the time they went bankrupt, cell phones had it covered. Cell phones could do everything that, or, or they could be everything for almost everybody, right? Not, not everything to everybody, but almost, almost everybody. They could, uh, totally overwhelm any advantage, uh, that Iridium had. Those are, uh, you know, definitely avoidable issues, but you know, it's kind of one of those things where these issues are inherent, uh, in, in doing business like this. One thing that is not inherent, one thing that is a thousand percent avoidable is apparently, uh, Iridium had really crappy customer service. Uh, I found an article, uh, where a reporter tried to buy an Iridium, uh, an Iridium satellite phone. And he like signed up on their website and, uh, he actually got like promotional materials in the mail and never was called by a sales rep. And he actually like had to call Iridium to get in touch with a sales rep. And they basically said, well, we don't sell service. You have to talk to one of our partners or our partner uh, companies who, who are actually doing the, the service providing. And, uh, they gave him this long list and he went, well, I heard that T-Mobile, uh, was one of them. And they said, oh, really? Okay. Well, yeah, maybe call T-Mobile. Like they just, they didn't even know what their own, what their own interface with their customers looked like. Yeah. It seems like a lot of business to business focused companies maybe aren't as familiar with the business to consumer company. Yeah. Uh, sorry, business consumer type, type pipeline. And maybe they're not set up for that, but, um. Yeah, I don't know how they were back then. But. Well, no, I, I think you're absolutely on the money because they also had really horrible marketing. Um, they didn't, they, they only saw, uh, B2B, uh, sales, business to business. B2C was not in their mind at all, apparently. Um, and not only was it just B2B, but it was only B2 bigger B, right? B business to big, big business. They didn't even consider apparently any of the niche commercial markets. Like imagine small international businesses that have rich clients, um, maybe, uh, import export or, uh, art sales or something like that. Like those are very small businesses that were not marketed to, uh, by Iridium. But they would absolutely be perfect for Iridium. They're going to be willing to spend huge amounts of money to be able to talk to their customers whenever and wherever they need to. And they're going to pay big money to be able to have a clear phone call with their customers because, you know, rich people are less likely to tolerate the sound of a bad cell phone connection. Uh, but Iridium didn't consider them uh, to be part of their core 
client base, I guess. Um, they also didn't even, uh, apparently they didn't even try to reach out to rural customers. Um, could you imagine all of Alaska being on Iridium satellites? Like totally, I could totally see that happening. The struggle of a consumer trying to buy something from a business to business focused company is something any maker should understand. (laughs) Uh, there are these very niche foam boards that are the only foam board that's rated for like fire resistance without being covered. And I need it for a particular project. And, uh, I had to hunt down several custom, several places that would finally ship them to me in less than gigantic quantities. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I need this thing, but I only need 10 of them. But that adds up. If you have 100 people buying 10, you know, there could also be some costs involved with those sales. And it's not a primary, yeah. you know, sales channel, but you know, that's, that's a, a decision that's made higher up, I suppose. Yeah. And it, it's just like, you know, the, the, that's the people who reached out. They didn't do any marketing in those markets. So like, that that's the people who know about this and are trying uh not just the the average person walking around so ultimately uh iridium failed to reach this critical mass that they needed their break even was 600,000 customers when they declared bankruptcy they had 55,000 that's a hell of a deficit like it's an order of magnitude off yeah exactly and so like you know when you're talking about subsidizing handsets or uh, having special uh, deals on how much your service costs. That's not something that you can really think about when you are that far behind your targets. Now, after they declared bankruptcy, they wound up being purchased uh, for $25 million. And at that point, they didn't have any of this debt and they were able to drastically slash their prices and um, become a, a much more viable company. Um, I mentioned before that they had, uh, started building a new constellation and yeah, their, uh, their last first generation satellite was deorbited in December, 2019. Um, and now, you know, Iridium is apparently like good to go. I, I didn't look too much into the company today. Um, but I haven't heard of them really being talked about in a terribly pessimistic light. Going back to the the maker comment, uh, you can now buy a satellite communication module that communicates with the Iridium network from like SparkFun yep. and put it in your IoT device. So yeah. the, the issue of trying to get a hold of something that will communicate with their device is, is no longer a problem. Yeah. And like, you know, that wasn't something that was available to them. So it's it's not like it's a fault of theirs for not going after the IoT uh, segment, but it does show a dramatic change in the way that they're thinking about their business. Uh, it's kind of, kind of cool to see this, uh, you know, huge change uh, from, from one company into another. I think after this uh, kind of <laughs> hit piece we did today, we should do a, a an article on modern Iridium next to kind of balance out <laughs> a bit of a story on that next yeah i'm here for it <laughs> but um anyway moving on from that uh next week is the 10th to the 16th of may do you have a clue for us yeah i'm actually going to read this for dennis um so next week in 1992 the clue is two's company three's a record all right so next week in 1992 two's a company three's a record and uh if you have a clue for us go ahead and tweet us with the hashtag this week sf and good luck yeah good luck everybody all right. And this week we have four upcoming spaceflight events. Richard, what's the first one? So up first, we have a Long March 2D launching an unknown payload uh, that's supposed to launch on Thursday, May 5th from 
2 hours 30 UTC to 3 hours 3 minutes UTC. Okay, after that we've got a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 417. Uh, launch library says this is 53 satellites, but I've been burned in the past. This is going to be launching on Thursday, May 5th at 10, 12 hours UTC. Uh, and that one's flying out of uh, Slick 39A. After that, uh, we have a Long March 7 launching Tianjiao 4, a cargo delivery mission to the Chinese Modular Space Station. That has a launch window of Monday, May 9th at 17 hours UTC uh, to 21 hours UTC. And that, that again, is a no-TAM. So, like... <laughs> We don't know if they if they've confirmed that they're going to launch or or what, and that's why the window is so wide. And then finally, we've got a Falcon Nine Block Five launching Starlink Group Four Thirteen. Uh, I really feel like we just did the same two launches twice. Um, uh, Four Thirteen is flying hopefully on uh, May tenth at eighteen fifty hours UTC. Um, this one's already been delayed a day, uh, so you know we'll we'll see if it launches on time. And that one is flying out of Vandenberg. Okie doke, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to deorbit the show. We'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. A special shout out to Chris, Chubby, Deathkin, Delta V, The Greek, uh, Leon, VT, maybe I missed somebody. Uh, but thank you all for joining the show. Uh, live in today's chat. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, or Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And we will see you all next time on Orbit. Thanks for having me on, and uh, you know, appreciate filling in, and uh, look forward to uh, coming on again. Thank you.